in Ephesians this morning, we are so very close to actually completing this book. If I'm not mistaken, I believe we started this year. <coughs> and I've spoken with some other pastors. See, pastors always do this. And I'm sure y'all talk about your work, too. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning. I go, what are you preaching on, JP? And I tell them, I say, what are you preaching on? And compare notes, talk about what's going on and things like that. Well, and I tell some of my buddies that I'm preaching on Ephesians, and then I've been there for nearly, not not nearly a year. Okay, almost, we're getting there, but not quite. They're like, wow, JP, you're going slow. I'm like, yeah, that's okay, though. So we find ourselves here in the middle of Ephesians chapter 6, and we're looking at specifically the theme of work this morning, and that's the title of the message, Grace and Peace, the Gospel at Work. The Gospel at Work. So a little rundown of what we've covered, just a little bit. You remember me saying probably by now, the first three chapters, we have the truths, the indicatives, right? The things that are real, that we hold on to, we hang our hats on, and Paul speaks of the riches of grace that the people in Ephesus have. The latter three chapters, we have more application or the imperatives. What do we do now? This is what we put our hands to, what we put our feet to, and how we're called to walk. And so he's covered so far walking with one another in the church, walking as husbands and wives, and then now he's going to look at walking. Oh, he's also walking in the home, and then today we're going to look at walking in the workplace so to speak. Now, I'm sure as we broach this theme, some of you are going, you know what? That's what I came here to escape from, JP. We don't really want to talk about work this morning. But we realize if, the, if, this, if God's word is true, if the gospel story shapes every part of our life story, then we have to talk about where it does that. And it does that in the workplace, believe it or not. And see, for us, it would be so easy, I was, as, as I was thinking about this this week, where does this land and meet us? It would be so easy for us to say, you know what, yep, people need to hear this about working because a lot of people don't like to work. And we know that to be true, don't we? Amen? So now it sounds like some of you might not like to work yourselves. We know that it's common in our culture, and it's not far away from us. It's here in our back door that the work's just not like it once was. And I know you well enough to know that most of you, if not all of you, are raised likely with a strong work ethic, as was I. I remember from an early age helping out family with all kinds of different stuff, both at home and also in the family business, and I'm grateful for those things. But we recognize that not everyone necessarily has those life lessons that's been taught to them. And the gospel reaches those people and changes their work habits too. So I hope that you listen. But we need to take account of where we actually are. Because you see, there's a dangerous assumption that a lot of Christians have, of us included. And we often assume that the gospel is primary, first and foremost, only in a particular context. All right? hope you follow with me. In other words, we'll put it this way. It's all about Jesus at church and me everywhere else. That's a dangerous assumption. You say, Pastor, I don't believe that. Who in the world would actually say that? None of us would say that. 
The problem is that we sometimes live it, me included. Every other context is our domain. We become the God, so to speak, of our rights in our workplace and our pleasure. And the list goes on and on and on. That's a not a good separation here. The Bible kind of dispenses with this. And I want to show you how this morning, because you see, as I said, the gospel story shapes every part of your life story, including your work. Now, as I keep saying work, I don't want you to start thinking about what you're going to have to do tomorrow morning. Not yet. I may ask you to do that, but hold on. But it does shape your work. More than that, God reigns on the other side of these walls is what we're getting at. And I hope you understand what I mean. I don't know about y'all, but I grew up often hearing preachers, and I'm going to throw a little bit of shade, but I am a preacher, so I guess I have the right to do that. I grew up hearing a lot of preachers preach to everyone except for the people that were actually in the pews. That does none of us, me included, any good. We're not talking about the people on the other side of these walls this morning. We're talking about where we are. Because, you see, God reigns on the other side of these walls, and he also reigns here inside as well. But guess what? He reigns in your work, too. Now, I'm not going to ask about it with a show of hands, but I wonder if I asked you this, this past week, what was the hardest part of your job? I'm sure I would get a different answer, probably for every single one of you. But if we got down to the root, it likely would be very common. Besides it just being hard, most of us had to do some, something that someone else told us to do. Or some of you told someone else to do something in the workplace that they didn't do and you wish they would have done might get more amens there. So it reaches every single one of us. But if you notice, if you read this passage, we read it earlier, it starts off with bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, and it goes on and on and on. And some of your Bibles may say that you may use different words. That initial word, bond servant, is a word for slave, doulos. It's a Greek word. And it indeed does mean slave. It doesn't just mean helper. Then you see the word master over here. Master comes from the word kurios, which means Lord, not just boss. What I'm getting at is this. You may say, Pastor, that's great. We're going to talk about these things. Okay. How are you getting from slave and master to the workplace? I'm glad you asked because that's what we're going to chase here for a moment. All right. We need to tackle the context. Because you see, we don't want to just jump into, well, this is what the preacher said. No, it's what the what does the Bible say? So how the first question, so to speak, is how do we get from slavery to the workplace? Well, Roman slavery was not American slavery, is the first thing. What we're gonna do when we tackle this first question is basically tackle how we read the Bible. Because whether you know it or not, everyone reads the Bible through a particular lens. And when we read a passage like this, the easiest thing for us to do is to go, well, the only slavery that we know about is the slavery in regards to the Civil War and in America, so that must be the exact same thing we're talking about here. That's not exactly how that works. The Bible has its own context. So we have to push against reading the Bible 
through the lens of our own nation's history. That's not only in regards to slavery, but also in regards to some other areas as well, even though we won't chase that today. Because you see, at one point in time, there were likely 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It's quite a lot. Nearly a third of the Roman people were actually slaves themselves. So slavery was a part of the economic backbone of the empire. And you might say, well, it was in America at one time too. But not quite like in the Roman Empire. In fact, furthermore, Roman slavery was not actually based on race either. It wasn't chattel slavery. It was a mixed class. And as the empire kind of waned, as we know the Roman Empire did, slaves began to be set free by the millions. And so some who were slaves actually became wealthier than their previous masters, believe it or not. Now, for some of you that are history buffs, you may be enjoying this. Others of you may be saying, okay, preacher, get to the application. What I do? Just hold on. And so we get to the question, well, okay, then, preacher, is slavery wrong? Yes, of course. Should we defend chattel slavery? Absolutely not. We know that to be true. But here's a pertinent question. We may not chase the question you necessarily want to, but chase the question we need. What is our primary mission then? Because see, when you read a passage like this, some people's primary mission are, ab- are, are to be abolitionists in regards to different things, and others, other people's primary mission may have to do with whatever they feel called to do. What I'm getting at is this. We need to read this passage in light of what the Bible says our mission is here and at the workplace. Because, you see, we make a terrible error when we assume that a laser focus on the primary mission will have no effect on the politics and the culture around us. What I'm getting at is this. When you read a passage like this, you may go, how come Paul didn't say they don't need to do that? If we know it's not right. And the reason he didn't go out saying we don't need to do that is because that's not what his primary mission was. His primary mission was not cultural change. And we live in a day and time in which as Christians, what do we want a lot of? We want things to change, don't we? I'm here to tell you this morning, the Bible testifies to us putting the Great Commission, the Gospel primary and first. Not some of the things that we wish would change. And that sounds like it does not make any sense, doesn't it? And, and I completely understand. The reason, though, Paul gives us, shows us this is because the gospel is the only thing that has the power to change hearts. And from there, the world changes. If you notice, everywhere that Christianity went through the world, if you remember this maybe from history class, if you watch, everywhere Christianity went, it totally changed things. Now, there was some bad stuff that went along with it, but people are sinners. And so we need to focus on the mission. And we might assume that Paul is a wrong kind of radical or he's not radical enough. And it's not, it's not the radical political change that we hope for, maybe. It's not the, the radical cultural movement that we so desire, or it's not the, the radical abolition that we might assume should be here. But the gospel Paul speaks of is radical in that it reaches nothing, what nothing else can. The heart of a dead man. You remember Ephesians 2. 
We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. So the question is this, how does the person who is dead but is now alive go about work? I want to actually put some meat on these bones that we've got here. In other words, how are you supposed to go to work tomorrow? Because most of us do, don't we? So let's let's tackle this. John Stott puts it this way. He says, of what Paul's talking about, talking about, his mundane tasks have been absorbed into a higher preoccupation, namely the will of God and the good pleasure of Christ. Now, many of you probably say you love your work, but I guarantee you, I guarantee you there's something you don't like about it. Amen? You're a little quiet on that one. I got to preach a revival this past week, so I'm a little bit used to people kind of speaking back to me. I got used to a conversation, so I may, I may expect a little more out of y'all this morning. Nevertheless, you understand what Stott's getting at. You understand this. The gospel absorbs what we find ourselves in. It absorbs the home. It absorbs the household. It absorbs the marriage. It absorbs friendships. It absorbs the workplace. In other words, the gospel establishes, indeed it does establish equality before God and absorbs the order and the hierarchies that are around us to create a gospel-ordered submission. Are you following me? In all these areas. And you may be thinking, okay, preacher, well, what about Galatians 3.28? Now, they're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're going to get to that, but we need to get to something else first, and it's this. We need to focus on our responsibilities over our rights. I also guarantee you, when you go to work tomorrow, whatever kind of work that may be, you're going to be upset with something. I guarantee you, before 5 o'clock hits... We will be unhappy about something. Amen? Yeah. What do you think is driving that unsatisfaction? Oftentimes when we ask that question, say, well, something, somebody did this. Maybe they did. But you see, a lot of times when we think about the gospel affecting, affecting things, we think, well, I was saved back when I was seven, so that's how the gospel affected me. The gospel continually affects how you operate. And it changes your perspective on your workplace. It shifts our focus from being on what someone did to me or didn't do to what our responsibilities are in the context in which God has placed us. Have I fulfilled the things I'm supposed to where I'm at? All right, are y'all still with me? Okay, good. Now we're actually going to get to some application. Let's look at two more points and then we'll be done this morning with all this groundwork. So the second question is this, okay then, how do I glorify God in my work? How do I glorify God in my work? See, the way in which we get from the workplace, or from slavery and mastership, so to speak, to the workplace, is that the context in which we find ourselves today, we serve masters, so to speak, in the workplace. And some of us may be bosses of others. And so that's where it meets us today, principally. Responsibilities over rights. Paul wasn't concerned about the rights as much as he was concerned about the responsibilities there. 
So how do I glorify God? We're on that. How do I glorify God in my work? Let's look at what he actually says. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. We'll stop there. Y'all hear that? Don't know what it says. Says I got to do what the boss man says, doesn't it? I got to obey. The Bible says, obey. But he gives some qualifications to this, but we do need to actually simply camp on that word, don't we? Obey your earthly masters with what? Fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ and doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether his bond servant or his free. Obedience is a difficult thing, and I'll tell you why it's a difficult thing, and we likely know why it is. It's because we're sinners. And some of us, speak for myself, are more hard-headed than others and do not like to do what anyone else tells us to do, do we? <laughs> but see, do you see this morning how the gospel reaches into where you are? Do you see in your own our own hearts a tendency, we want to... Yes, the gospel's great out here. But if Jesus is my Lord and I'm placed where I'm placed in my life, then God expects me to respect those that are above me. Because see, we live in a day and age that hates hierarchy, don't we? How would it be at your workplace if you went to work and there was no boss? It wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't much get done, would it? God has made the boss man and made the worker. Not because any of us are less than the other, but because he has made things so that things can be made. The creation mandate can be accomplished. Adam was a boss, so to speak. And so what we must do in our work is actually obey those things around us. Now, let's, let's actually get a little more particular. How does he say do this? The first thing he lists, essentially, is that we ought to do it with reverence. Now, that is, doesn't mean that when you go to sweep the floor, because the boss man said you had to sweep the floor, you got to start singing Amazing Grace and make it reverent. That's not what we're talking about. It doesn't make it holy. But we think that way often as Christians, don't we? If I just do this with a little Christian attitude, that's going to make it all good. And quickly you find out as soon as you're unhappy with something, the attitude's gone, isn't it? So how do you do this with reverence? He says, what does he mean reverence? With fear and trembling. It doesn't mean you shake in front of the boss man. But I'm sure many of you have seen the context in which we live today, those who have absolutely no regard for authority, no respect. It's the same with kind of similar authority we're talking about in the home in which the children are called to obey the parents. Why do you do what mom or dad says? Because that's the authority that the Lord's placed in your life. Why do you have to put in the information at your desk in the particular way or whatever that the boss said you needed to do or at least figure out how to do it? Because that's the order that God has made. So what glory is it is in that for me? See, that's the point. It's not about your glory. God's glorified in your well-doing in your work. So do it with reverence, also with sincerity. He says, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now this, this is, this is even harder. 
Y'all know when maybe when you were kids and mom or dad said, go clean your room, and you said, okay, I got an idea. I'm going to make a path. And maybe this was just me. I don't know. I'm going to make a path from my door to my bed so it's operable. You know what I'm saying? That's okay with me, so it must be okay with the boss man. That's not what he asked, is it? And so when we don't do things with a sincere heart, we don't actually do things fully. Now, if that's our attitude in the workplace, why do you think that would not transfer into our attitude at the house? In regards to our friendships, in regards to our relationship with the Lord. Because you see, when the gospel reaches our heart, it permeates everything. If it's not permeating everything, perhaps we're actually setting up walls to keep it from doing that because it requires less of us. See, it's a real deal, isn't it? You don't get to hide anymore from it. With sincerity. So not a, fine, I'll do it. But a, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. I'll do it as best I can. And then you do it. Next thing is with service. Obey with service. And he says, and I love the way the ESV puts this. After he says, as you would Christ... Verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Paul's just not slacking, is he? I don't get to just do the job to make sure it looks as though I just did the job. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because that's the way sometimes we operate. Well, it looks like I worked hard. I gave eye service to it. But did you? Because you recognize, and there's a fantastic Latin phrase that came out of the Reformation 500 years ago called Corum Deo. Essentially means this. You are before God at all times. Phrase means before his face. There is nothing that God does not see. So do it with sincere service. Not by the way of our service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. We often live that way, though, don't we? As people pleasers. And living that way comes from regarding other people's opinions, yes, and the way they view you is more valuable than how God looks upon you. But the funny thing about that is that when you actually live that way, you do a far less quality job in many areas than you would otherwise. It's hypocritical in many regards, but it's also oxymoronic. See, this ends up getting very practical. So we have obey with service, or with reverence, with sincerity, with service, and then lastly with knowledge. After he says, uh, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. Knowing, here's this word knowing, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Now here I'm not as much concerned about knowledge of what as it is simply knowledge oriented towards who. The knowledge he's speaking of is oriented towards God. How often when you're on that phone call with that nagging customer, 
Or maybe you're at your desk and you're just going away at it again. Maybe you're trying to figure out some solution to a problem at work. How often do you think of all those things in regards to being before God? Often the farthest place we get is it's before our boss and it's before me, so i got to go with it. But actually it's before God too. And you see, that's amazing because it changes how you do things. And this is another amazing thing that you see since the Reformation and over time is Christians and their understanding of vocation and work is an amazing thing. Out on the backside of the Reformation, they, they recovered this idea of the Christian work, the Christian work or the Christian understanding of vocation. That, and that is that all that we do, we do to the glory of God. And what you ended up finding is that the Christians were the one that, that produced some of the most amazing things. How do you think we got to the Industrial Revolution? If not because everything in which that took place is because it was in a Christian context that allowed for these great things to be accomplished. And what you'll find is the farther we get from God in our workplace, the less quality and less good work there is. And what I hope you understand, too, is that when you look at this, it's not sufficient to slap one of those fish symbols of the feeding of the 5,000 under your logo on your business card. So that's Christian. Yes, it is. What needs to be behind that is the reality of actually how you do your work. Is it glorifying to God? So this is in regard to the worker. All right. Now we have to move on in regards to the boss. This is here's the third third question. Not only how do I glorify God in my work, how do I glorify God as the boss? Right? Because there's some of you here that are that person. The Bible speaks to that as well. Notice what he says here. After he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Masters, verse 9, lords, boss, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. We need to focus at least first on this, do the same to them, which what means what that essentially means is that we take everything that was just said and apply it to the boss as well but in his context or her context. And so that means lead. That's what the masters are required to do. Lead first and for, or at least first with reverence, with reverence as well. We're to work with reverence. We're also to lead and instruct with reverence. And sometimes what ends up happening is those that are in positions of being the boss or being the leader get on a little bit of a, a leadership high leadership trip. We've probably seen this before. I love getting to tell people what to do. It can be fun sometimes. That's the bad part of it. Because we enjoy the glory. But see, what this ends up doing, what the Bible tells us to do here, is that when we do it, when we lead and instruct out of reverence to our heavenly master, we're not chasing our own glory. We're leading because he's leading us in our lives. That changes things in the workplace. 
But don't only lead with reverence to your master in heaven, but also lead with sincerity. You can lead without sincerity. You can say, well, I told them how to do, what to do. I told them how to do it. They didn't do what was right, so it's on them. Well, the reality is, is that it ends up finally coming down to the boss's hands, doesn't it, when there's a problem? And a lot of times, the leaders, the bosses, their job is much like a fireman going around putting out fires wherever they end up. You might spend your whole day just doing that so that your workers can accomplish the things that they're called to accomplish. And so we've got with reverence, with sincerity, and also, at least thirdly, lead with service, not severity. Service, not severity. I've, I've, I've seen it before, and I'm sure you've seen it too. That boss that loves to yell, but doesn't accomplish a whole lot by doing it. Right? Well, I yelled at him to do it. You didn't tell him how to do it. You just hollered. Right? And we can mul- multiply that, though. And we see, well, where, where are we getting this from? Again, from, want to make sure we understand the text, to do the same to them. Masters, do the same to them. What was it that Paul told them, the, 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 them to do? Verse 6, not by the way of our service as people pleasers, but as bond servants to Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Service to those that are under you. Now, now, I'm not talking about this, uh, this mindset either of servant leadership. Uh, if you go reading a lots of leadership books, you'll find this phrase over and over and over and over and over and over again. And what it ends up doing is creating this idea that at the center of the leadership is those that are below you. And that's not how leadership works. That's not what you find in the Bible. The bride is not the center of the relationship between Christ and in the church. It's God. Rendering service as a leader means rendering good leaderships so that they can operate the best that they can. That's why there's bosses and there's workers, because not everyone's cut out to be the boss. And see, God, or the way that the Bible is written here, it, it's simply written with the understanding that that is how things work. And we live in a day and age it does not like I remember growing up, I'm sure many of you did too, and maybe, I don't know if it hit your generation yet or not, but this with the idea that everyone is a leader. I hate to break it to you, but that's not true. We may be a leader in different regards, but when you start telling everyone that everyone is only in the verse 9 of this passage. You end up with those who don't know how to live from verses 5 to 8. And things get really messed up. And that's the day in which we live. And so lead with reverence, with sincerity, with service, not severity. And it's interesting, if you read Proverbs, and I love Proverbs, there's so much wisdom in Proverbs, you'll find that, a lot of times you can accomplish just as much, if not more, 
with less severity. It's amazing how that works. Now, not always, not always. And often, at least back in that day and time in the Roman Empire, they would not want to mistreat those who were below them because they needed them to do well and function. A respected worker and servant was much more profitable than one who was not. And so lastly, with knowledge, but this is going to be a different kind of knowledge than the knowledge of the, the worker that we were speaking of. Because we actually have that word again in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening. We spoke of that. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Lead knowing, lead with the knowledge of no partiality before God. In other words, it means this. You are no better than those that are below you. You simply have been placed in a leadership role over those. For there is no partiality with God. And we know that to be true because, we get back to this earlier question, because of Galatians 3.28, where there is neither slave nor free, or male nor female. He's speaking of those things in regard to salvation, not in regard to the world in which we live necessarily. But if that be true in regards to salvation and your standing before God, that we ought to operate from that understanding in how we lead and also how we work. Now, we've covered these things, at least the two major ones. How do I glorify God in my work? And how do I glorify God as the boss? And so, when you clock in tomorrow, whenever that is, you can call your boss man. Say, guess what my preacher preached on yesterday? Maybe he'll say thank you. But the last thing I want you to leave with, um, is in part, why does it matter to us? And it matters because we're saved. I hope you understand that. And I've realized this more and more and more. And I know I'm not getting my second win. We're fixing our clothes here. I realize this more and more that when we fail to define what it means to be saved, what the Bible ends up saying makes no sense to us. Because if we strictly go by what it meant to be saved kind of when I was growing up around here, then when we read a passage like what we read today, we can read it very legalistically. And that's not the gospel. There's grace provided for us in these things. When you fail as the worker, there's grace for you. There, when you fail as the boss, there's grace for you. But you only get to enjoy the riches of that grace as you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And understand this as well, is that when you have done that, that's when the work begins. You don't get to take a break the rest of your life after you get saved. That's when it starts. And so if you don't walk away with anything else, I hope you walk away at least with this, that we need to go to work with a gospel perspective. Go to work with a gospel 
perspective. And you may be surprised. And you see, it's amazing how this works. That when we do things like this, it's actually easier to share Jesus with other people. When you have a gospel perspective on life, you don't have to seclude evangelism into four walls and do it this way. It simply falls out of your mouth. The praises of Jesus and how he's working right now in your life. And I've seen it among you too. So keep doing it. We can keep chasing this mission that God has given us. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, you have given us a mission, and that, that mission is to make disciples. But Father, I pray that we not be overburdened, or because we understand that you always go before us in our workplace and everywhere else. Lord, is the Lord over all. Your sovereign Father, you're providential over all things, and you see all things, and you know all things. Lord, and I pray that we give glory to you and how we how we work, Lord, that, that our, our ethics of work would be a testimony to, to how wonderful you are, Father, that we work the shovel harder than anyone else, Father, that we plan wiser than anyone else, that we obey better than those around us, Lord, all as a testimony to how wonderful and how almighty you actually are, Lord. And Father, I ask these things in your son's name today. Amen. Two eight six.